You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the final event from Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. This hybrid conference took place on the 2nd and 3rd of December 2021 in UCD Humanities Institute and featured 15 speakers across seven panels. Framing Aging is supported by Welcome Trust. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from all our previous events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie. This episode features panel two, narrative one. The speakers were Anna Fuchs, director of UCD Humanities Institute, who presented on Elizabeth Street's Olive Again and the Leaking Body from Speechless Abjection to Narrated Empathy, and Dana Walrath from Vermont, who presented on From Graphic Memoir to Chamber Opera, The Interdisciplinarities of Alzheimer's. I'd like to start my paper by summarising really my last paper, uh, in which, um, as you may or may not remember, I made the case for a post-humanist, anti-ableist approach to the fourth age as an alternative to the prevailing model of successful aging. I argued that Rowan Kahn's definition of successful aging was steeped in a Cartesian notion of the autonomous and rational subject, and also that the idea of successful aging reflects a neoliberal political agenda by turning aging into a project for the empowered individual rather than for society as a whole, the successful aging model replicates the neoliberal equation of the value of life with entrepreneurial agency, cognition and purpose. In other words, the model is a classic example of an ableist outlook which, as Berridge and Martinson have argued, discriminates against people with disabilities based on the assumptions of inferiority, abnormality, or diminished humanity. Against this, uh, against this ableist outlook, I then pitched disability scholar Yun Jung Kim's idea of unbecoming human, by which he means the self-reflexive adoption of an anti-ableist perspective which surrenders the Cartesian subjecthood in favor of a relational understanding of the self and the other. I then examined moments of unbecoming human in Elizabeth Stroud's novel Olive Again to show how it enacts a shift from the capacity-based definition of being human to a post-humanist understanding of entangled existence. And with reference to a central episode in the narrative where Olive falls on the porch and is unable to get up, I argued that this is a significant moment which is rendered in interior monologue to give us unique access to a terrifying experience of bodily incapacitation. So far, so well. So building on my approach, in today's paper, I want to focus on a particular episode in the same narrative, which in the social imaginary is associated with disgust and abjection, the incontinent body. And this connects me back to Ulla, 
who reminded me that 25 years ago, when she was in UCD, I taught a, co a, a course on abjection in Kafka, actually. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I will argue that what I shall call Stroud's empathetic realism manages to simultaneously articulate the dread associated with the loss of bodily control while also gesturing towards an anti-ableist ethics of the relational and codependent self that is caring and cared for by the other. So let me start with a social imaginary of disgust and abjection. And I'm drawing in my discussion on three sources. Julia Kristeva's notion of abjection, which was my course 25 years ago was based on that largely, and then the works of Paul Hicks and Chris Gillard, as well as on the cultural and literary historian Wolfgang Menninghaus. And in drawing on these sources, of course, I'm adopting a deeply interdisciplinary perspective. So, according to Julia Kristeva's psychoanalytic theory of objection, objection is a founding moment in the archaeology of subjectivity. The boundaries between the self and mother, between inside and outside, the proper and the improper, the clean and the unclean, and so on, uh, is based on a significant moment in the pre-Edifal phase where the child rejects the good maternal object in favor of the entry into the symbolic order with its clear boundaries between self and other subject, object, and so on. While the objection of the unclean thus marks one's entry into subjecthood, this is of course never fully guaranteed since from its banished place outside the symbolic order, the abject continues to threaten the subject. And I just quote the second quote here by Anna Smith. What the symbolic system expels as waste or defilement becomes abject, but its very persistence indicates the ongoing difficulties of any final exclusion. One example of the threatening return of abjection is, of course, the uncontrolled excretion of urine and feces in old age, which, as Paul Hicks and Chris Gillard have shown, plays a particularly prominent role in the social imaginary of old age. Old age is associated with the whole iconography of abjection, which stigmatizes the aging body as disgusting and abject. Bodily fats, wrinkles, warts, hair sprouting from the nose and the ears, the toothless mouth and so on, are encoded as disgusting transgressions from the ideal of the beautiful body that has informed Western aesthetic discourse since antiquity. And so it is that our experience of disgust is not just an anthropological issue or a psychological reaction as described by Kristeva, but it is also hugely shaped by aesthetic norms. So in his great book on disgust, Winfried Menninghaus analyzed the economy and iconology of disgust and its genealogical dimension. And he argues that it was above all 18th century aesthetic discourse which formulated its ideal of beauty with reference to Greek and Roman sculpture and that this kind of discourse is still influencing the way in which we perceive uh, beauty today. And I'm referring here especially to Johann Joachim Winkelmann's influential work Gedanken über die Nachahmung der griechischen Werke der Malerei und Bildhauerkunst of 1756, which influenced the entire classical tradition across Europe, 
uh, with his definition that beauty is defined by noble simplicity and quiet grandeur, both in posture and expression. And here I reproduce the Apollo of the Belvedere for you as an incarnation of this guiding visual matrix. So, um, of course, the flip side of this particular definition of beauty in terms of the body's smooth surface and harmonious proportions is, of course, the disgust directed at inner organs, excretions, and bodily fluids. As Menninghaus further argues, this discourse on disgust was, and I quote, compressed into one single phantasm, that of the ugly old woman. This phantasm conventionally brings together folds and wrinkles, warts larger than usual openings of the body, foul black teeth, sunk in hollows instead of beautiful swellings, drooping breasts, stinking breath, revolting habits, and a proximity to both death and putrefaction. I mean, that is some powerful quote. And of course, uh, to underline this, uh, I have reproduced Durand's allegorical female figure, uh, and of course, it is no coincidence that um, this depiction of the uh, old hag is associated with avarice. That's a, a, a prominent trope in the history of Western art. And then uh, you can also look at the Giorgione called Tempo with age of 1510, which was influenced by Durer. So returning um, uh, to the discourse on object objection then, the excretion of bodily matter in particular features as an especially scandalous sign of abject corruption and shameless decay of body and mind. As Paul Hicks and Gillard have shown, to this day, incontinence is abject not only because of its material dirtiness, but because of the implication of failed agency. In other words, uh, perceived as a failure of self-care, Incontinence is socially associated with intellectual impairment requiring social sanctions. And they summarize their analysis of the social imaginary of abjection as follows. Abjection defines the social imaginary of the fourth age just as much as frailty, but unlike frailty, it is not a topic in gerontology or geriatric medicine. Abjection is neither a syndrome nor an index. It flourishes in the disdain of the fit for the feeble, in the distance between those aging successfully and those who are frailing, and in the division of labor that separates and keeps clean those who manage from those who give care and do not. That which is abject is attached to and comes to reside in the person who cannot keep themselves clean, who cannot manage themselves and the mess they make of their lives, end of quote. And this brings me to the final point of my paper. I'm going to argue that literature, works of fiction and poetry uh, have a special ability to challenge the prevailing social and indeed visual imaginary of objection. I want to argue that Kitteridge's novels overcome the objection of the fourth age by means of what I called the empathetic realism she employs and which explores aging in the community from an ethnographic perspective. Shifting points of view, narrative voice, temporal spatial duration, and especially narrative focalization 
are the central devices that facilitate other ways of perceiving the aging self. Stroud's empathetic realism interweaves an abject bodily experience with heightened introspection and self-realization. The gradual reduction of Olive's bodily functions is symptomatic of the broader malaise of the contraction of her social life. And before I explain this with reference to a few textual examples, I want to bring in a little bit of literary criticism for those of you who are not experts in this domain, and I want to do this with reference to the Soviet narratologist Mikhail Bakhtin, who has coined the extremely useful term chronotope to describe the way in which literary texts interweave time and space in the creation of fictional worlds. So he writes, in the literary artistic chronotope, spatial and temporal indicators are fused into one carefully thought out concrete whole. Time, as it were, thickens, takes on flesh. I really like that becomes artistically visible. Likewise, space becomes charged and responsive to the movements of time, plot, and history. So in Stroud's narratives, the unity of place facilitates an ethnographic perspective on aging. The implied narrator adopts the position of the participant observer, tracking the experiences of the main character. This ethnographic perspective also explains the lack of employment around a central conflict. The two novels explore events that make up everyday life. They are, in fact, anthropological, with their focus on the inevitable passage of biographical and social time. Ordinary crises, such as Henry's and Jack's deaths, foreground the unevenness and contingency of lived time. Lift time, and by implication the process of aging, do not unfold in linear fashion, but contain disruptive moments that puncture the present. So, one prominent example of this is Olive's accident of soiling herself while she is asleep. I quote, That night, Olive soiled herself while she was asleep, and she woke immediately with the warmth of her excrement seeping from her. Horrors, she whispered to herself. This happened twice before since Jack died, and Olive would not tell her doctor or anybody. So the episode marks Olive's dread of the fourth age, which, as Hicks and Gillard have shown, functions as a kind of black hole in the social imaginary. While the third age is culturally associated with active, fit, and fulfilling post-retirement life, of the well-oiled middle class, never mind about the working class, the fourth age represents a collectively imagined terminal destination in life, a location stripped of the societal and cultural capital of later life, which allows for the articulation of choice, autonomy, and self-expression. The dread of the fourth age is not, not only entails the fear of losing agency and the right of self-determination, but also the existential anxiety of entering a black zone that marks one's social death prior to real death. So the soiling episode is part of the much broader narrative exploration of Olive's growing sense of loneliness. At the beginning of the chapter, Olive is having breakfast in her local diner, where she accidentally runs into her former student, Andrea Lerio, who was an unremarkable high school student but has become a famed poet. 
In fact, a few years prior to the encounter, she was the U.S. Poet Laureate. As the conversation unfolds, Olive talks about her experience of gradually losing social capital and becoming invisible. She, I quote, You go through life and you think you are something. And then you see, Olive shrugged in the direction of the girl who had served the coffee, that you no longer are anything. To a waitress with a huge hind end, you've become invisible. And it's freeing, end of quote. A few months pass before Olive discovers a poem by André Lerieux in the American Poetry Review. Entitled Accosted, it contains the following lines. Who taught me math 34 years ago, terrified me, and is now terrified herself, sat before me at the breakfast counter, white-whiskered, told me I had always been lonely, no idea that she was speaking of herself. End of quote. Olive is so offended by this poem uh, that she drives to a remote garbage bin to dump the magazine. Her prime concern is that the poem has been read by the other members of her community, dismantling her public facade and social standing. However, the soiling episode that I quoted before then makes Olive review her encounter with an attitude to Andrea. She admits to herself that on that day in the cafe, she had only sat down across from her former student because, I quote, she was famous, and also because she, Olive, was, and Andrea was right, lonely. She, Olive Kitteridge, who would not have thought this about herself at all. The soiling episode is expanded after Olive's move to the retirement home. As the residents are boarding a bus which will take them to a shopping mall, Olive notices that some of the women are wearing diapers. The scene is focalized through Olive's eyes as follows. She could see them bulk up the women's hind ends if their coat didn't go below their waist. And one woman, she bent down to get something she had dropped uh, onto the floor of the bus, just about exposed this fact to everyone. It made Olive shudder. Here, Olive's viewpoint reproduces the disdain of the fit for the feeble and the socially encoded sense of abjection. At this point of the narrative, she's hanging on to her sense of autonomy by maintaining a distance to the other residents. When her incontinence recurs in the new residency, it is an experience which she tries to shield, not just from the outside world, but also from herself. I quote, then something happened that made Olive far more concerned than the lack of sun in her apartment. Olive's bowels began to leak. She had first had this occur at night. It had woken her each time with a terrific sense of dread. And then one day, on her way out of the dining room, she thought, I'd better hurry back to the bathroom, but she didn't get there in time. For Olive, this was absolutely appalling. As she rose at six in the morning the next day and got into her car, and uh, sorry, she rose at six in the morning the next day and got into the car, and Olive drove to the Walmart far out of town. Walking as quickly as she could with her cane, she bought a box of those atrocious diapers for old people, and she brought them back and put them up on top of the bathroom closet. She wondered 
when she should put one on. She never knew when these episodes would occur. This experience of incontinence is so abject because for Olive it symbolically marks the transition into the fourth age and the perceived failure of self-care. The decay of the body is encoded as a corruption of the integrity of the self. Olive's sense of objection is heightened by the secrecy surrounding the entire experience, by furtively sneaking out of town to purchase the diapers, she submits herself to a symbolic order which is troubled by that which it expels. However, one day, as Olive needs to rush to the toilet in her friend Isabel's apartment, she notices that Isabel too is using incontinence pads which enables them to talk about their experience for the first time. And this is my last quote. Isabel pushed her glasses up her nose with the back of her swollen wrist and said, my bladder can't seem to control itself, so I had to start wearing them. Not always, but at night I do. Olive said, well, my back end leaks. I'd say that's far worse. Isabel's mouth opened in dismay. Oh, good heavens, Olive, that is worse. I guess to God it is, and I think after I eat is when it happens. Honest to God, Isabel, I'm going to have to make sure I have my foolish poopy panties on. Even my granddaughters outgrown them years ago. Isabel seemed to enjoy that. She laughed until tears came from her eyes. Then she told Olive how she was always embarrassed to buy them when she took the, the, the van to the store with the other old people. She always tried to sneak off and get them, and Olive said, Hell, I'll buy all you want. I go to Walmart when it opens at six in the morning, is what I do. Olive, Isabel let out a sigh. I'm awful glad I met you. So this conversation marks a significant transformation of the terrifying and isolating otherness of objection into a shared experience. By talking and indeed laughing about their incontinence, Isabel and Olive move it from the black box of incommunicability into the sphere of a shared social world which is made up of small acts of support and solidarity. I'm awful glad I met you sums up a different value system based on relationality and the recognition of our codependency. Thank you. Everything so far just makes me even more sad that I can't be with you there in person. It prompts so many conversations, things I want to follow up with. Um, I'm in awe of Elizabeth Stroud's brilliance. Thank you, Anne. Um, and I won't uh, take all my time with comments that I have to say to everything, everyone, but instead I'll get uh, right in. Well, that was a very emotional paper, too. I remember thinking that, um, and that, that incontinence was going to be the, um, the, the change um, when we had to change when my mother lived with us. And instead, it was very, very different. So lots that we can talk about. But, okay, I'm not there with you because the pandemic is demanding to change our ways. A deep belief in the healing power of the imagination and its ability to take us across human-made boundaries, borders, and categories inspires my creative work, itself a blend of creative writing, visual art, and anthropology. 
These are the words that run across the bottom of the first page of my website. As well, the four-field uh, American anthropology that I practice emphasizes the interaction between human biology, culture, language, and their preservation in the archaeological record. The discipline is both humanistic and scientific, qualitative and quantitative, and the answer to nearly every question we pose is both, or malaria. Now, I straddle Armenian and American cultures. I lived in Brazil as a little girl. I, as a young adult, I lived and worked in Yemen as a math and science teacher and in Egypt as a cellist. In other words, as a person and in my work, I'm interdisciplinary. I see all boundaries, borders, and categories as human-made, retained and reinforced through our systems of power. That means we can change this. It is time. Now, throughout training aging, I've spoken about Alzheimer's, and both visual and verbal comments can only show multiple perspectives and realities at once. And now there's yet another layer, there's more. Alzheimer's is now a chamber opera, which just had its first preview performances. The opera, like the first book and its sequel, replaced the flattened dementia story of loss, fear, stigma, and shame with the one that restores humanity. They all show the magic and the healing and the laughter that's possible during loss. Now let me remind you of what I mean by magic. It's mysterious, naturally occurring phenomena whose mechanisms so far have eluded scientific inquiry. Love is magic. Music is magic. So is story and opera has it all. Today, I'm going to go light on this opera's abundant laughter and joy to make space for some evolutionary theory in order to speak directly to this Omicron moment that we're in. Now I come to this scientific thread honestly. Alice was a biology teacher who imparted her reverence for science and for medical doctors along with her knowledge about the um, natural world. Now often, evolutionary theory gets reduced to Darwinian adaptation, natural selection, and its central tenet, competition for scarce resources leading to the survival of the fittest. It's no accident that this view of nature aligns perfectly with the colonizing societies from which it sprang. Darwinian adaptation gets trotted out to naturalize concepts such as conquest, uh, competition, aggression, leaving out other, the other three evolutionary forces, random mutation, random genetic drift, and gene flow. These three forces bring back magic, humility, and multifaceted systems of exchange. Now think about the meaning of random and mutation for a moment in light of the dazzling scale of the human genome and also in light of the CARS CoV2 genome, which can mutate readily and rapidly, as we know. Random demands humility. Random is, uh, makes us humble in the face of unknown and uncontrolled phenomena. Random might even lie in the realm of magic. Now, gene flow, that other force, the movement of genes through populations, depends upon socially laden, intimate exchanges that lead to the making of babies. This isn't just biology. Nothing ever is, it's always both. 
working through, whoops, wrong way, working through the capacity of individuals to spread their genes. Natural selection can also reify gender norms of male sexual profligacy and female dependency. It focuses on single individuals and the creation of single species instead of balanced, abundant ecosystems filled with diverse inhabitants who benefit from this multiplicity. Emphasizing competition, it erases our interconnectedness. But being part of an opera, whether as a librettist, composer, soprano, bassoonist, set designer, theater usher, or member of an audience is always relational. No single individual can pull this off. In synchrony and harmony, opera bends the rules of everyday science to transport us together through space and time. Now, when composer Eric Nielsen approached me about the opera, I had to say yes. For Alice, Opera was a way into the American dream. The brown daughter of refugees of the Armenian Genocide, young Alice first listened to the Saturday afternoon Metropolitan Opera radio broadcasts while she was cleaning other people's New York City apartments. For the rest of her life, she tuned in each week. Alice's reverence for opera, like her reverence for biomedicine, was part of a lifelong practice of seeking, seeking safety and proximity to whiteness, to dominant cultural norms, to culture with a capital C, those elite arts so separated from people's lives in, in uh, Euro-American traditions. What could be more elitist than opera? But Alzheimer's, like other contemporary operas, uses the extravagant medium to promote justice. As Alice tells her own story, she removed stigma and restored the personhood that was stripped away uh, by society's reaction and to uh, her cognitive difference that came as she aged. Now, conceived of as a single singer work to highlight the artistry of soprano Mary Bonham, the opera's first act follows Alice's present tense from today to her childhood, to her dreams, to her fantasies, to her realization that she could no longer live with me. Act two follows her seven-year journey in care with Alice still traveling through space and time and ages. When we get to full production, a silent actor and dancer will join Alice on stage along with lighting, sets, and costumes using Alzheimer's art. An ensemble of 10 musicians will play the score that in previews was rendered solo by pianist Alison Sorudi, and there you see Mary. Now, Alice's dementia included a constant hunger. So the curtain opens with broccoli. A scientist would say that her hunger indicated a frontal presentation of dementia. But what if that hunger among Armenians came from starvation that accompanied the genocide? Remember, to a four-field anthropologist, the answer is always both. And what about the hunger that resounds after displacement from one's homeland, that resounds from genocide denied and striving to attain success in a new land? Now, Alice's story, like all good stories, is also universal. We're born, we live, we die, and along the way, if we're lucky, we heal. So what is healing? It's a matter of being seen, being heard, of loving and being loved, of letting our collective memories meet, of forgiving others and forgiving ourselves. This opera tells the story of Alice's use of dementia to heal. And healing is the question of the hour. 
How can we collectively heal ourselves and our planet? How can we co correct the centuries, if not millennia, of injustice surfaced by the pandemic? How can we shift our systems so that we no longer reward domination, aggression, and extraction? How can we return to what we know in our hearts? Can opera help us get there? I think so. Opera's over the top. Humans sing in superhuman ways, projecting their voices like gods without the aid of any machines. Operas of drama and emotion are likewise over the top, allowing audiences to touch what they might normally keep at arm's length, such as death and dying. Our medical system works so hard to prevent death and to isolate it into hospitals. The opera ends with Alice's peaceful death at her home, detoxifying it further by showing the power and beauty of this natural transition through music. And I have to tell you, I've only heard the digital recordings of that part of it. Uh, it it's so gorgeous. I couldn't stop crying from its beauty. Now, a peaceful death comes only if we do the emotional and spiritual work to heal. The scene, Mama No, returns little Alice to the anger, shame, and guilt she felt toward her younger brother, Antony, who was named for a general, adored by their big sister, Rose, and born with an extra chromosome 21. You've met him before. And you'll remember that during dementia, when Alice, uh, that Alice told me, when Mama and Rose mopped the floor, it was my job to mind him out on the corner. People stared and called him names like they did on the bus. I was glad when he was gone. Antoinette and 
advantage to American norms ran through nearly their entire adult lives. It took dementia for the sisters to open to one another, but to this day, Rose carries what you were hearing as the scene continues with little Alice trying to show Mama that she could clean instead of waiting on the corner. Change it. I tried to 
psychiatric admission that followed, that first care home said Alice would never be able to live in a group. She went on to live seven more beautiful years in group settings. All it took, as you would hear if you were watching the full opera, was bowls of fruit and every stone in case she was hungry. And love from the extraordinary carers, primarily black and brown women, many from the global south, who bring love, flexibility, generosity, and creativity daily to their essential work. It is time to use all our smarts as Alice did to free ourselves from these broken systems. With the climate disaster, the pandemic, and pervasive injustice, it is time to come together as we have here, to exchange across silos, across national boundaries, to freely give food, shelter, vaccines, and education. Such exchange across boundaries is not so much new and innovative as it is new, with a K in parentheses, as we say at the Atlantic Institute. This is the human baseline. It's what we know at our hearts. It is time. Our mother is giving us signs. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.